Welcome back to episode 2 of series 3. What happened to Mary Flanagan, missing or murdered? My name is Mark Williams Thomas. My background is as a former police detective turned investigative reporter. In this series, I'm looking at the Metropolitan Police's oldest missing person case. Mary was just 16 years old when she went missing on New Year's Eve 1959. I am doing this podcast as a final push for the family and the Missing People charity to see if anyone can finally give up the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Mary had told her parents that she was going to a party at Tate and Lyle where she worked to celebrate the new year. Although unbeknown to her parents, Mary had not been at work for the two weeks prior to her disappearance. Despite the fact that she'd been setting off each morning and returning home each night as if she'd been working there. So where was she going each day? Why did she keep up the pretense that she was still working at Tate and Lyle? Once upon a time, there was a gingerbread man. Everyone wanted the little biscuit because he was made from Lyle's golden syrup and cane sugar. From Tate and Lyle, the only cane sugar refiners in the kingdom. So what happened to Mary? Did she run away to start a new life or was she murdered? In 2013, the Metropolitan Police launched its own review of Mary's case. Melissa York was a trainee reporter at the Newham Recorder newspaper, the area from where Mary went missing. DCI Rock said to me, um, do you know about this case? Uh, it's the oldest missing person case in, uh, in the Met. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And he said, yes. And he said, well, the thing is, he said, I know the paper's carried it a few times in the past, um, but it's, it's coming up to what would have been her 70th birthday. Um, and the family is still open, largely because of the family, because the family just won't give up looking for her. So what was the late 1950s and 60s like? Women at the time working at the Tate and Lyle factory were known as the Sugar Girls. There's, a, there's actually a really fantastic book. It's a really nice bit of social history. That's called uh, The Sugar Girls. Um, and it was published in 2012, The Sugar Girls. And that kind of uh, brought all of that community back together again, really. You know, lots of them started getting in touch with each other, having read the book. There was a huge community because it was almost one of those um, almost kind of Victorian um, companies that used to kind of really look after their employees. You know, you hear about Bourneville sending people off to the seaside to recuperate and things, their employees. And that's the sort of thing that Tate and Lyle used to do as well. Um, and they used to throw uh, kind of big staff parties that are very popular. They all used to hang out in the same pubs. They also used to have um, lots of sports clubs. Uh, you know, they lots of people that worked at the refinery used to play kind of uh, football and cricket and rugby together and things like that so it was um, and also if you worked in the Tate part of the factory or the Lyle part of the factory you were kind of branded with that you were either a Tate or a Lyle and uh, and so there was some sort of like tribalism going on kind of friendly rivalry as well when they played sports so it really did kind of birth a big community in East End and, and the people that um, used to live there look back very fondly on, on, on working for the company. 
How difficult is it to come home or make contact after you've been missing for many years? You often find that with people that have gone missing for a long time like this, um, sometimes they don't want to be found. Sometimes there is some kind of reason um, why they wanted to start a new life and to get away. And, you know, they may have gone away and changed the name or moved to another country. And they just, if they don't want to be found, they don't want to be found. And something really kind of interesting that uh, the detective was telling me about this was that he often acts as an intermediary between families and found people. Yeah. And he said that, you know, often um, he's, he's able to tell the family that that person is safe to put their mind at rest. But very awkwardly, he often has to tell them that, um, you know, their family member doesn't really want anything to do with them anymore, which is awful. But I mean, so this is it. But so you've got that side of it, um, which, you know, could suggest that maybe she didn't want to be found. But the fact that Brenda and the rest of the family have uh, pursued this for so many years, for so many years, and that's the extraordinary thing about the case, that it's still open because of their perseverance, seems to imply that that wasn't what went on at all. If Mary is still alive, she will be an elderly lady now. She would be 77. Also, a lot of the people that would have known her perhaps have died as well, um, mm. certainly moved away, because, you know, that, that kind of part of the East End is very transient um, for, for obvious reasons. Uh, lots of people kind of have their starter homes there. It's full of kind of, um, you know, there are lots of immigrants that, that start their new life in London there. Um, so, you know, when people tend to uh, get a bit of money to be able to buy somewhere, they move out. So it's, yeah, there's not to say that a lot of those people are really around to remember her anymore. In the 1950s and 60s, people were much more trusting of others. Also, a sense of community really existed. They talk about um, having, you know, their doors open and kind of popping in to see people in the, in the local community all the time. You'd know all the publicans, all the landlords... Um, you know, you'd go and take your glass on a Saturday night to one pub um, and then you'd have to hold on to your glass because they'd run out of glasses and you would just walk down the street and, uh, you know, and just uh, work your way through all the pubs and you'd know everyone in them. There was there was a huge um, social life to be had, basically. Um, everyone was out on the streets drinking around the pubs. I think it was impossible to really keep a tab on, a, on exactly where your teenager was at any one time. They were all drinking much earlier as well. You know, they were all kind of in the pubs from the age of like 13, 14. Given how close the community was, how come nobody saw her and came forward to the police? I say that with a caveat. It is possible that there were witnesses that had information that did come forward at the time. But given that the police file was destroyed or lost, we will never know if witness details and accounts were actually in the original police file. Yes, exactly, yeah. I mean, that's that's what makes it very odd as well, that nobody seemed to have seen her. And what would have been one of the busiest nights of the year, you know, uh, all the pubs would have been absolutely full. Um, so again, I mean, that suggests that maybe there was some kind of tragic accident uh, and something happened to her in that way. Mm. Um, you know, it, it does seem very odd that... You know, nobody saw anything on New Year's Eve and all of the pubs would have been completely packed. It's a mystery that continues to fascinate people.
Over the years, the family have not had much news, but they did get a very interesting call from Scottish police in Edinburgh in 2016. In 2016, I had a phone call from the police up in Edinburgh. Um, I don't want you to get too excited. He said, but somebody, a woman came into the police station today asking for our help with her medication. And the, the face was familiar. And we asked the lady's name. And she said her name was Mary. And the face was really bugging us. So the officer that was on the desk went out to the back and went on the computer. Because he just had this name in his head, Mary, and he put Flanagan with it to Google Mary Flanagan. And obviously Mary's picture come up. And he thought, that's that woman out on that front desk. They said she looked like a lady in the 70s. So he came out and he was asking her other questions about her life. She wondered why he was asking. She said, I don't know what you're asking all these questions for. I'm independent. I can look after myself and all this. And she got on the defensive. And he said to her, you're clearly not looking after yourself because you've come into here today to ask for our help. So she really got on the defensive. And they decided to phone me to ask if she had any distinguishing marks at all. Well, she did. She had a little scar. And I told them where this little scar was. And they said, OK, then, leave that with us. We'll be back in touch. Uh, but what we're going to try to do, we're going to try to put it into a safe house. The following day, they got back in touch and said that they put it into the safe house and they decided to send um, a social worker around to her. And she was really on the defensive again. And she wanted to know why she was being questioned. So they had to tell her. She said, I've not got no family. I'm on my own. I've always been on my own. And I'm self-sufficient. And they were just trying to push it a bit. And they wanted to know if they could take her photo. And she wouldn't let them take the photo. So they left because she really got distressed. They thought, we leave it. And we'll go back another time. When they went back another time, she'd gone and never been seen since. So what came with a Scotland sighting? Sadly, nothing. The missing charity followed it up with Edinburgh Police, who were not able to help them any further. But it is clear to me as an investigator that a massive opportunity was missed here. Why was some publicity not done at the time through local paper or a radio appeal? This sadly is a reoccurring theme that I find so often when I review cases. Police officers lack of thoroughness. They do a certain amount and then don't see it through to conclusion. Perhaps it was Mary, or maybe not, but certainly the old lady's behaviour was odd and suspicious. She clearly needed help, and then became anxious and nervous when more questions were asked of her. Either way, this is a very clear reminder for an investigator or budding investigator. Listen, never just be happy with enough. Go that extra mile, dig deeper and get to the truth. Given how over the years Mary's appearance would have changed, the missing charity commissioned a forensic artist to create an image of what she may look like now. Please go to our website www.the-detective.co.uk to see the age-progressed image. I asked Tim Whidden to explain his role. My background was in scientific illustration. Um, 
And as I was doing that, I became interested in this um, you know, skill of facial reconstruction, mainly originally looking at archaeological reconstructions of ancient Egyptian pharaohs and people like this. Um, however, I became, began to get more interested in the um, police side of it. And there's one course up in the University of Dundee, which is an MSc in forensic art and facial identification, the only one in the world. And I attended that. Um, and from that, I began um, presenting my research conferences and ended up getting work that way. Forensic artists can have a number of roles. Um, generally, it's regarding creating face, uh, creating facial images, and this can be for the purpose of identifying a person or seeing how someone will look many years after they've gone missing. Um, and it can also be used for identifying criminals potentially that have been seen by a witness of an offence um, and a number of other um, related areas. I was contacted by one of the members of staff from the charity Missing People. Mary's uh, family have expressed an interest in having a public appeal um, to try and trace her and try and find her now. And part of that was to have this age-progressed image. So that means an image basically that represents what Mary would look like currently. I took on the job, and as part of that, I was sent multiple images of Mary uh, before she went missing, and also the immediate family members at various different ages. And this was to help me try and establish what Mary would look like today. because there was only two photos of her available, one of which was particularly blurry and low resolution and didn't contain detail. So really, I just had the one image to go off. Um, it was a clear image, but it was black and white. Um, it was quite monochrome, so there weren't many grey shapes. So yes, whilst um, I did use the siblings' facial photos to inform my decision about what Murray might look like now, I actually um, took many photos, maybe about 50 photos, stock images, um, photos uh, from an image library, and used these to actually construct Mary's new face as I thought she'd look like today. And these were basically composited, so built up as individual parts onto Mary's original photo, which itself had been modified to represent the proportions I felt her face would take today. I wanted to understand how Tim went about creating the image. Yeah, so it was, I mean, it's a gap of nearly 60 years between um, when Mary went missing and I made the age progression. There are two main approaches to this, um, and I use both of them. As the first approach is to just look at the standard models of facial development, um, and this is how the skull basically changes um, throughout our life and how that impacts on the soft tissues. Um, and that's actually quite a predictable process, um, and it's very similar in most people. Uh, the second part of that is looking at uh, immediate family members at their age, looking at similar features that they might have shared with a missing person, and then trying to identify family resemblance and how that could have impacted on Mary's development as well. So looking at the family, um, they all had some features that were similar. Uh, so, for example, they had similar-shaped eyelids. Um, everyone in the family's eyelids in later age tended to have a downward slant towards the lateral sides. Most of them had a quite a straight eye opening, except for one of the sisters. Um, and they all had 
fairly similar shaped noses, and the siblings at least, which was quite unusual because each sibling had quite a different shaped nose from their parents. So how long does it take to create these images? It can often depend on the age gap between when the person went missing and what age they've been now. If you're looking at an adult age progression that's only 10 years, it can be a lot quicker. In Mary's case, where we had a gap of 60 years, um, I had to really imagine how our face would have developed throughout those intervening years. And altogether, this one probably took around 30 hours. So are there some uniquenesses in our face which don't change as we get older? There are some areas on the face that don't change, yes. Um, so the eye region, the actual kind of shape of the eyebrows, and eyes themselves tend to remain quite stable from when we're in our teenagers up to when we're an adult. Obviously, there are effects from gravity, there's wrinkling, that do slightly pull down the features of the face. However, the general underlying structure around the eye area stays quite similar. Obviously, the teeth remain quite similar. The pattern of the ear, the helix in the ear, stays similar, although the ears do grow and again are pulled down by gravity. There are some routines of the face that are quite stable throughout life. So how effective are these age progression images? Yeah, the, um, I mean, the age progressions can be tested under scientific conditions, obviously. Um, as part of the course in Dundee, you're given photos of individuals at a young age and you're asked to progress them. Um, but these people aren't missing, you know what they look like now. So you can measure the success of these images in terms of being accurate against, you know, what that person would like look like now when it's confirmed. Generally, age progressions are used in two ways. They can remind the public of what a person would look like now. That'd be really, really relevant in the case of Mary who's been missing so long. Someone might spot some of the similar or say, hang on, that looks like whoever that lives down my world. However, another really great part about age progressions is they do get picked up in the media and they do bring in public interest to a, what is effectively a cold case. But working two ways. It can be that very direct, yes, I recognise that person, or it could just be reminding people of a case and sometimes you get information coming forward via that way um, just because it might jog someone's memory from maybe decades ago that felt like I did know something at the time I didn't come forward, but now I'm going to. And what was the response from Mary's family when they saw the image? The family's reaction was really positive. Um, it's always quite nerve-wracking. Uh, family have a high stake in these images that are made, that ultimately they are made to try and find and identify a missing person. But uh, the family's you know, response is really important. That really felt like they recognised Mary in the age progression when they saw it. And, you know, that kind of, to me, was a real kind of mark of it being success. I have no doubt that the key to finding out what happened to Mary is to identify and trace her fiancé, Tom. But without his surname even being known, this is a needle in a haystack at best. The question remains, was Tom's full name recorded in the original police file? And was he ever considered a suspect? If not, why not? Did Tom's behaviour raise suspicions? No, because he seemed a nice guy. We all liked him. He just seemed a general... All right, sort of guy, but wouldn't, wouldn't hurt anybody. Dad spent a lot of time with Tom, because Tom used to still come round for a few months, going out. When his dad wasn't at work, he was out in the streets looking for mail with Tom. 
just walking around the streets, going to... Mary used to like going to um, a cafe that was next to the Granada Cinema on East End, just to listen to the jukebox with her powers and that. And they used to go there and just stand around in the hope that she might turn up one night or whatever. Um, but obviously she didn't. And um, just walking the streets, the shamelessly really, in the hope that I would see they even we used to go to Plasto where we used to live just in case she used to go around there and things. The sad reality is that the police have made some major mistakes, none more so than to lose the original case file. Unfortunately, where we've got a problem is, uh, Plasto police station, we were told, had a flood and a lot of their paperwork got destroyed. And obviously in them days there was no computers or backup things. It was all on paper. So according to the Plaster Police Station, which we found out in later years, um, not in mum and dad's time when she was ever talking for but when I started doing research into finding that. In 2013 I was told they had a flood and the paperwork was destroyed. So according to Plaster Police Station, Mary was never reported missing. And that's terrible because that looked as though mum and dad didn't care enough to report mm. their firstborn missing because there's no record of it. I've got paperwork in my folder to prove that she was reported because I've, um, I've got letters from the Salvation Army, I've got letters from the police, I've got letters from newspapers that they contacted. Brenda tells me about some of the inquiries she has made. We started our search back in 1983. We first of all started with um, getting in touch with the, um, the census people about the National Insurance Contribution. See if they could help to try to trace the through a National Insurance number. And it turned out that they said that they would look into it and they're not allowed to divulge an address, which for obvious reasons, but they could if they found an address, if we sent a letter to Mary unsealed in an envelope so they could sort of read it to make sure there was no malice and whatever and they would forward it on for us and um, they got in touch to say they did have an address and they was prepared to do this we um forwarded a letter to them and they sent a letter back to say they forwarded it on to this person at this address and just got to wait now to see what comes of it but unfortunately it got returned to them not knowing this address all we can presume is that was the last known address that they had. What other inquiries do they know were made by the police? They've checked passport, they've um, checked driving licence as well. I mean, I even got a policeman that lives, we don't live in there, but he lives next door to us. I even asked him if he'd check on the police files to see if she had a criminal record. Hmm. <laughs> you know, to that extent. He said, well, I can do. He said, but I might turn up something you don't want to hear. I said, I don't care what it is. Whatever it is, I want you to do it. And he done it. And I've got, I've got a copy of that inquiry here as well. Um, and that was in January 95. And it come back, a message, no trace of a record under inquiry details. So that, that's all right. Um, but I was, I, I was prepared for anything. I just wanted to know, you know, but that didn't lead nowhere. This gave the family great hope that Mary was still alive after she disappeared. But from the information I have been able to obtain, that address held by National Insurance was a former family home 
from where Mary went missing. Like Brenda, her siblings have been trying hard to remember more details about Tom. Kevin found me one day and he said to me, I've got a name that keeps coming into my head. I don't know where this name's come from. He said, it's in connection with Tom. He said, we know he was Irish. Um, well, we presumed he was Irish. He had an accent. It could have been Scottish. I don't know. He was only young. But we think he was Irish. He said, and the name McGinty keeps popping into my head. Tom McGinty. Tom was a merchant seaman. That's how Dad met him on the docks. But they done. They looked at all the records going back to that time, but they couldn't find a Tom McGinty as a merchant seaman um, at all. Or no records to Tom McGinty. So they come to the conclusion that this wasn't Tom McGinty. Uh, we still don't know whether that is the right name or not. There was, however, a very positive sighting of Mary after she went missing. A neighbour saw her, but she was wearing glasses. That was a man. It was called, he was called um, Mr Weaver. She had a friend called Carol Weaver, and it was Carol Weaver's day. I'm talking about years after. This was when we were in London. And he said to her, Oh, Mary, I think your Mary turns into a lovely young lady. And Mum said, what do you mean? So he said, well, I've seen her. And Mum said, you've seen her? Said, yeah, I've seen her. He said, um, so she said, well, I don't know. What she turned out like? Because she's been missing since um, New Year's Eve 1959. And I don't know what year this was, but this was some time after. So he said, oh, I didn't know that. And Mum thought, Mum didn't believe him at the time. And she said, um, well, I find that really strange, really. She said where, he said where he'd seen her, but I can't remember where that was, either. and um, he said, in fact, I had to look twice at her. He said, because I didn't think it was Mary. He said, because when I knew Mary, and this would have been when we lived in Plastow, not in West Ham, she didn't have glasses, but your Mary had glasses on. Well, Mum had known, prior to her leaving home, she did go to the opticians and she had to have glasses. And Mum said to him, just by chance, did you know it's the colour of the frame? And he said, yeah, they were green. And it were green frames that, that Mary had. And uh, he said, if I see her again, I'll tell her to get in touch. But what we find really strange is... When Mary got these glasses, now I've got a receipt here. It's a receipt for Mary's glasses. And it was from a, 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 an optician called March in East End. But the dates of the receipts are really confusing. Because on the date of the receipt, it's got January the 11th, 1960 on the top. And it's got Miss M. Flanagan. 16 Wallace Road, E15. 19th of December, 1959. One green frame in the pies and one lens in the pies. But what's confusing is the receipt for the glasses, right? Mm. 
and it doesn't say <clears throat> where it was sent to, uh, but presumably it was sent to Wallace Row. But it's dated the 11th of January 1960. So could the order have gone in on the in December, but the glass is not picked up until January? Yeah, that's what we're thinking. Yeah. Now, I think December is when the order went in. And of so course, if she picked right. those glasses up... This is very interesting. Certainly the green frames match, and significantly, this would be called a positive identification, because the person saying they saw Mary actually knew her. But questions remain around the sighting that only Brenda's mum can answer, such as exactly when was this sighting? Was it reported to the police? Were the glasses at home when she went missing, or did she have them with her? If this was her in the years after she went missing, she was still in the same area or visiting. If so, why has nobody else come forward saying they have seen her? So, what could have caused Mary to run away? I think she was pregnant. And we all think that. I don't know whether mum and dad thought that, they never said that, but I think she was pregnant and she would be very frightened to come home and tell my dad being a Catholic that's what we're saying why she would have run away. Right. She was frightened of doing that and she felt without she couldn't, she had nobody to turn to because my grandparents were Catholic and Nanny especially, she was um, really, really into religion. Brenda continues with her theory, but did she have evidence that Mary was actually pregnant? It's just a theory. It's just a theory because we, you try to think of reasons why she would go. And that well, is a reason, but I think if she was pregnant, I don't think she intended to go and be away that long. I think she might have intended to go away, have the baby, and then put the baby up for adoption, and then come home. Uh, but in time, she couldn't do that. She might have not been able to give the baby up if she was pregnant. It's only a maybe, and wanted to keep the baby. And then in time, she thought, I can't go back. If she was pregnant, that could certainly explain the argument with her dad the night before she ran away and why she needed to leave. But she would almost certainly have been hospitalised to give birth and on admission, especially given her age, her details taken and her medical records file updated. And if she was not hospitalised, then a midwife would have needed to have an address to go to and again, records made. Other option is an abortion. And that, depending on where she had it done, could have brought with it all kinds of risks. I have to say, I rule out that she had a baby at that time, given that there is no update on her medical records since she vanished. So is it possible that Mary's body could have turned up in a mortuary and not have been identified. That is possible, but in 2013, DNA played a vital role. DNA was taken in 2013. They only took mine at first, but then they decided to take Kevin and Ireland as well, so they could check against um, any unidentified bodies that they've got. And lucky enough, they didn't, they didn't connect to it. So... So that was all right. So as far as we know, she is still alive. There's no death certificate. There's no marriage certificate. 
My driving license, not in the name of Flanagan anyway. They even checked Gretna Green, in case she went to Gretna Green. Brenda's fought for many years to find out what happened to her sister. Um, a lot of people say, you was only eight, you wouldn't have known much about Mary. And I get a bit cross really, and I think, how can you say that? Of course I knew I had an older sister. You can't not know it. It did impact. Because when there was family get-togethers, we knew that there was somebody missing. Even down to funerals, when there was funerals, we knew that there was somebody that wasn't there. It's impacted on all of us. It dominated our lives. The mum and dad didn't left, and we weren't left. Until we've got some closure, we want a good closure, obviously. But even if we have a bad closure, at least we know. And then we can grieve. So does Brenda think that Mary has been murdered? Your head tells you yes, because that's what nobody can find her. But your heart tells you no. No, she's out there somewhere. And she, she's fighting to get in touch because she's a fear of rejection and what we're going to say to her. How could you have done this to mum and dad? How could you have done this to her? But we're not going to do none of that. But she doesn't know that. She doesn't know we're looking for her. So we need to let her know at every opportunity that we are looking for her. We do want her back in her life. And it's all going to be at Mary's pace. And if she doesn't want contact immediately, uh, just the knowledge of knowing that Mary's safe and well, that is so important to us. And you never know. One day she might think, well, actually, I do want to get in touch with her. I have no doubt that if the original missing person report from 1959 had not been destroyed or lost, it would have contained vital information, especially about Tom. Perhaps Tom had nothing to do with Mary's disappearance, but my gut feeling is that he certainly knew vital information. What we will never know is if the police took Mary's disappearance seriously and investigated it, or just went through the motions. Very frustratingly, I can't be certain what happened to Mary, but what is certain is at age 16, she was able to stay completely off-grid, which was much easier in the 1960s than it is today with CCTV and external monitoring factors. But even then, it would not have been easy. She certainly fits the profile suitable for abduction and murder, which could explain why she's never resurfaced in any proof-of-life inquiries. If she was murdered, her killer has managed to successfully evade capture and dispose of her body. Very sadly, Mary remains one of hundreds of young people who have simply vanished, leaving their loved ones forever heartbroken. It is for these people that the not knowing never gets any easier. If you have any information about Mary or her whereabouts, please call Newham Police Missing Persons Unit on 020 821 75728 or call the charity Missing People Anonymously on 116 000. You've just heard episode 2 and the final episode of Mary Flanagan, Missing or Murdered. In the next series, I investigate the unsolved murder of 15-year-old Lee Boxall. In this series, I will be hearing from new witnesses who have never spoken out before and be revealing compelling new evidence. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
we ask that you please tell your true crime friends to listen and subscribe to our channel. If you have any thoughts or just want to get in touch, then you can do so via our Twitter page at The Detective FM or go to our website www.the-detective.co.uk. Thank you for listening. This episode was written, produced and recorded by Mark Williams Thomas, edited by Martin Kays and the music by Dylan E. Pager. The Detective is an original true crime podcast brought to you by Acast. <laughs>